Welcome to episode three of our podcast, Using AI. This week, we delve into the fascinating crossroads of AI and the future of work, a subject that both excites and terrifies people equally. I'm joined by ML research scientist Alex Papadopoulos-Kofiatis, also known as Alex Pat, or the other Alex, although sometimes I'm the other Alex, and AI startup founder Rafi Farouk. I'm your host, Alex Den, and let's get stuck in. Nice quick intro, future of work, lots to talk about. And actually, it's been quite a big week of news in terms of future of work stuff. Uh, anything you guys want to kick us off with? Hi, Alex. Hi, Rafi. Want to go first, Rafi? Um, sure. Yeah. Hey, everyone. So we had some big piece of a big piece of news this week, which is Jeffrey Hinton uh, quit Google, um, mainly over fear of what AI could become, but also to concentrate on philosophical endeavors to help inform society about how to manage and, um, I suppose, be wary of the dangers of AI. And this is big news because Jeffrey Hinton uh, was, or still is, one of the pioneers of AI, and particularly um, in machine vision. He was one of the biggest, uh, the biggest and most important researchers. Um, his work paved the way for what is now ChatGPT and so on. And certain uh, AI researchers perhaps like Jan LeCun, um, seem to not be so afraid of where AI is now and want to keep pushing it further. Um, but Jeffrey Hinton seems to be fairly afraid and, yeah, wants to work on reducing risk, I suppose. So I saw this article and uh, coming from a place of ignorance, I didn't know the name Hinton before uh, the news hit, but... Uh, from what I understand, there's a couple of interesting elements here. Uh, part of me, the sceptic within me, I'm usually an optimist, but I can sometimes be a sceptic. Has he left because uh, Google Brain is mixing and merging with DeepMind and he's 75 and has decided to retire and fair play to the guy because he's done a lot of incredible pioneering work, as you were just saying. But it it it, it felt like when I was reading this, like he's used leaving as a platform to uh, air his concerns. But I I didn't feel when I read it and just putting some background stuff together that his fears were the reason for him leaving. But I feel like that's sort of how it's been portrayed. I don't know if you have a comment on that. And you, you were taught by uh, DeepMind as well, weren't you, um, professors? So I, I'd be interested to know if, if you've got more clarity on that. Yeah, it does seem like there are some timely circumstances because as we all know google is pretty scared at uh, OpenAI and them taking their share of search business and i imagine there's a bit of political unrest within the google ranks if i had to guess um so it's hard to say uh hinton hasn't given that much information if you read the articles um more that he slightly regrets his contribution to the to the field <laughs> Um, but I also wants to advise on a philosophical level. So we don't know too much information, but he is coming towards the end of the end of his career, you would think. And so that may also be an impact. I think he did mention in a clarification though, also that um, this is not a jab at Google in a way, or uh, uh, like a claim that uh, Google has not been handling safety correctly but more that uh, he wants to be free, I guess, to freely express his opinions about AI safety 
without the conflicting interest of a corporation that does work on AI, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I guess we'll have... figure out as well in the in the short or long term future, right? We'll see what uh, what this next phase of uh, Hinton's uh, career will be like. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to whatever he has to say from now on. For sure, and that would also make sense because it's been very public that um, our old friend Elon has uh, consistently accused Larry Page of not taking AI safety serious enough, and so. One would not be surprised if Google as a whole does not take AI seriously, AI safety seriously enough. It's interesting that that is the angle that they've been pushing there, as in that that's their argument for delaying things, right? So, sorry, to be clear, that's Google's argument for delaying BARD. Or... Yeah, exactly. They're saying they wanted to make sure that things were safe before they released it, um, which is a very clever marketing play. I would say. Speaking about Google, I think my uh, piece of uh, news for this week is uh, uh, actually leaked um, document from uh, some kind of a Google uh, researcher. We don't know if it's actually by Google or not, but um, it's a very, very interesting post about um, open source large language models and how open source models will quickly overwhelm any kind of uh, closed source API approach. And uh, it's a very well written post and uh, there's, a, there's a clear timeline of uh, how quickly the, the LLM community has uh, taken, I guess the um, llama weights posted slashed leaked by uh, Facebook and built on top of that and managed to get them to run on uh, low power devices on Raspberry Pis managed to get them to train quicker you can uh, train on a um, on a kind of a household machine within a few hours and for a few hundred dollars um, and managed to train like pretty impressive models that are getting to be uh, as good as uh, the huge uh, commercial models and uh, like the general sentiment of this post is that uh, Google internal is quite worried about uh, about this and about uh, the approach to, uh, to to keep things closed and uh, co like concentrate on large models which uh, I don't know for me uh, if those fears are true that would be a pretty uh, positive development because um, it democratizes, I guess, access to uh, to large language models and to uh, and to research, right? And that was uh, one of my main concerns about large language models as a research topic. That uh, if it's only big corporations and uh, and huge, uh, I guess, university teams that have uh, access to uh, compute power enough to train those language models and actually do research, then what does this mean about the future of research in uh, in smaller companies or universities, right? And uh, this democratization is like pretty good news, I guess, for um, for the field of large language models as a whole. I love this piece of news. I think it's, it's really exciting. I don't think, other than perhaps looking at cryptocurrency and the boom uh, of, of, you know, open source and blockchain technology, et cetera, it feels like open source is getting a little bit of a renaissance. And if the future is us contributing to like a fraction of the power of our tools and devices to help train and improve models on an ever-increasing amount of content on the web, 
then I think that's actually very cool. And obviously it democratizes the access as, as well, as you say, reduces the costs. Um, it looks like an absolutely fascinating article. I'd definitely recommend uh, people grab the link in the show notes. And shout out to all the uh, indie developers who have been trying to democratize and open source these big language models. I've personally been part of a Dali Discord group that since Dali came out has been trying to build their own version of it. Um, a bit like a, some sort of renegade underground group of developers trying to democratize AI. And I think there are there are many of them and it's a good thing. Really interesting that in that article, the, the example that's given is uh, of DALI and uh, stable diffusion and uh, how stable diffusion now has essentially um, taken over um, DALI and become better because of uh, this army, as you're saying, uh, Rafi, of uh, indie developers trying to build things on top of it and uh, make it better, right? And uh, it seems that the similar thing is now happening in the text generation field. Yeah, and just to say the funniest thing about the Llama weights being published, if I'm not wrong, I believe they were posted as a comment on the GitHub repository of Facebook's own Llama. <laughs> so it was kind of there public for everyone to see and even facebook to see well i've just noted down i think a great topic for future would be uh, an entire episode on sort of prompt hacking and democratization because i've seen a few of these types of groups i've seen a few apps and uh, tools appear um and people have also been trying to find like loopholes in the api of open ai so that they can access uh a cheap or a free level of tokens and then exploiting that and i think there's there's trouble brewing there but i think um i've also got a, a friend who's very keen on the idea of like prompt hacking prompt competitions and i think how that filters into democratization uh, is is very interesting my piece of news for this week is and it it's always a beautiful segue isn't it the stanford and mit study that showed that workers who mostly customer service workers who used generative ai as part of their day-to-day were uh, 14% more productive than the workers who did not and uh, the study claims this is one of the first real studies of applications of generative ai in the workplace which i think is brilliant um and it comes to the point where we say ai will not replace jobs but humans using ai will replace humans not using AI. And I think that segues us nicely into the the discussion. Um, I don't know if you do want to comment on on that story or if you saw that before we dive into the theme. I, I did not, but uh, to me, 14% sounds fascinating. I don't know, especially because we don't really know how to use these tools yet, right? And uh, the these tools have not reached a mature stage where they would uh, they're actually like well developed and well researched tools on how to um how, how to make people more productive using them right so if it's 14% now so this number will only keep rising i guess so yeah it's that's uh, fascinating for me the year long experiment revealed that ai assistance improved customer satisfaction reduced requests for managerial intervention and improved employee retention. Those are three big tips for the use of AI in the workplace. Yeah, agreed. All right. So the future of work, a very big subject. Uh, So let's try and constrain this to no further ahead than 18 months. So if we're ever talking about anything that seems too far-fetched, we're only talking about it in the context of 
we think it could be here in the next 18 months. So just keep that in mind if we can. Um, and then there's a few domains in which a lot of research has already been done uh, or predictive research estimates, I suppose. Maybe guesstimates would be fairer in terms of which roles. There's a paper that one of you have shared here um, in terms of jobs that could potentially be displaced or replaced by GPT-4 specifically. Uh, do either of you want to dive into that and just explain a bit about it? I, I love these uh, papers. They're always uh, shared very widely because uh, then, you know, like the very top, well, number two is a stock trader as a 95 percentage chance of being replaced by GPT-4. And you can imagine a stock trader being like, whoa, what? No way. And all of these things. But uh yeah, very interested to hear. I must say, Alex, it, it, it feels that uh, every week we're picking a topic that's bigger than the weeks before, which uh, is saying something after the topic of uh, AI safety. But uh, I I love this topic. Um, about the paper and about this discussion in general, I guess, I, I'm not sure what to take out of that uh, paper and the table that we can now see and uh, the stock trader as the second option it says uh, that there's a probability as well not sure how much i trust that but there's a probability according to the authors of that uh, paper which by the way i'm not completely sure is like we're saying paper but uh, it might not be it's, it's a publication and archive it's not peer reviewed unless i'm wrong um but yeah it says 95% probability that uh, a stock trader job will be um, replaced by large language models. And there's also upskilling advice as a as a column that I was uh, quite amused by. So the upskilling advice for stock traders is gain expertise in niche markets. Anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know where to start uh, talking about this topic from, I guess, except for a general sentiment that, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily large language models or AI that is going to um, replace workers, but workers that are trained in using uh, AI and use those tools to their advantage will replace workers that are not. So maybe this is generally true, but at the same time, I, like the first thing I want to discuss with you too, I guess, is uh, the markets and domains where something more than this is possible, right? Like, for example, the content creation um, domain. So it it feels to me like content creation is a domain that's uh, that, that's more dangerous in the in the way that maybe jobs can actually be replaced by uh, by artificial intelligence and generative tools. We already see that it's so easy to create images using uh, AI and keep iterating on those images until you get something that you're happy with. And uh, case in point uh, are backgrounds, which, uh, by the way, maybe if you're listening to us, you cannot see them, but we have three pretty cool backgrounds uh, for this uh, for this uh, for this podcast. Uh, all of them on the future of work or something like that. Anyway, but uh, yeah, it's so easy to iterate on something and get a result that you're happy with that uh, maybe a lot of small content creators and uh, artists will just go out of jobs and will not be needed anymore. What what do you think, Alex and Rafi? I think uh, the general argument is, or has been, that the creative industries are going to be the ones that are last impacted. I don't know about you. I mean, you guys have both worked in this field for longer than I have, but jump back three years and everybody was talking about the creative industries, the things like uh, 
uh, you know, like artists and uh, writers and um, I don't know, therapists, right? Things that are very like human interaction. They result in like a feeling. These are things that you can't easily, you know, automate. They seem to have been the things that have been most disruptive early, most disrupted early on, which is fascinating because it goes to show that actually it's really hard to predict the effects of these things before a big sort of seismic shift takes place. So, um, you know, there, there, there are multi-hundred million value companies that are creating companion AIs, therapist AIs, coaching AIs, um, and those were predominantly human, you know, one-to-one interactions. So that's fascinating that that's one of the areas going first. I think photography, we've already seen, you know, an AI photo win an award, um, the top spot of the Sony uh, Photography Awards. And in terms of art, we've seen the cost to create like varied art, completely change the format of the art, you know, in the style of this person or combine these two styles. It's fascinating the way that these things can be mashed up in a way that's much quicker um, and and uh, and better than I think people thought it would be. And I think even for people in those fields, the ability to stop sort of like painter's block or writer's block by using these tools as a form of ideation, that has been really heavily proven. I think a lot of people have fed back saying, I love using it for brainstorming. I love using it to get me past that fear of the blank page. And I'm yeah, I'm just really surprised that those have been the the first to go not that they're gone yet but there are very effective ai substitutes if you were choosing whether to pay 50 pounds an hour to speak to a therapist or uh you know fully employ a writer these days there's actually a very viable alternative which is which wasn't the case a year ago alex i hadn't heard about the therapist and that that that's very interesting but at the same time it is a bit concerning right i would uh... I would be interested to see um, some kind of study showing whether the effect is similar and whether people can actually get help by talking to an AI therapist or whether it's just uh, it's just I don't know some kind of uh, marketing fad that uh, will die down after people realize that uh, it's not effective. If it is effective, I, it's it's fascinating though. The specific. The specific example um, was, and I've seen a few of these, but the thing that comes to mind is a Reddit post from a dad who was in the hospital with his daughter who was ill, and they were both really struggling. Um, And the hospital therapist uh, was assigned to them. And the therapist didn't really help. They offered like very cookie cutter advice. They were working through a list. uh, And the guy turned instead to GPT-4 and started having a conversation with it. And it came back with much the same tier one advice, if you like. And then they said, no, I need something more than this. This is this is too uh, surface, right? I need something deeper. I need something applied to me and my circumstances. And so he puts in details of, of him and his daughter's circumstances. And it comes back with really great feedback, suggestions, mechanisms um, for how they can proceed. Now, obviously, there are ethical and safety considerations there. But in this specific case, they felt like it served them better than the human did. And even these individual stories, I think, you know, there's obviously a very broad picture as we're all coming to terms with this technology. But the individual stories, I think, paint a really interesting picture at times. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised if I'm honest with you. I think, um, yeah, 
you know the the first jobs to be or the jobs to be most affected are those that are creation orientated and creative orientated and that's natural because these are generative ais that are designed to create and generate and so in the case of therapists you're uh you're creating you're producing natural language and you know although it seems like a complex job obviously i'm, I'm not a therapist i don't mean to take away from all the therapists out there but um in the end you're taking a input and you're giving a logical response and you're it's probably not a job where you want to go too off piste you know, there there are probably known theory and tactics that a therapist should stick to similar to a life coach there is a technique to be being a coach and you ask the right questions and given that's the case one would think that models like GPT-4 can perform the same as humans at that, if not better. And to be honest, from what I've heard from my friends who are therapists, you know, having to sit there all day and listen to the terrible events of people's lives over and over again, is quite a thankless job. It's quite a difficult job. And AIs don't have to take that pain. Obviously, this is easy for me to say not being a therapist, but that's my position on, on that role. Easy for you to say not being an AI as well, Rafi. Maybe the AIs do take the pain. Well said, well said. A very good point. I hope everyone's saying please and thank you just before we get to the singularity so they treat you kindly. Just another um, sharing. I was traveling to, to Wales with a friend of mine on the weekend who is an art director, has worked for some of the top and produced some of the top films in the world. And, um, you know, he was saying concept artists who produce concept images for films are likely to be the first to go. Um, but I actually see the entire film industry being significantly affected because very soon we'll be able to create anyone will be able to create any movie with any character and any any script you know your own George Clooney obviously not George Clooney because IP considerations but there'll be AI characters that become famous and I think in this respect I think that's a good thing because currently Hollywood just isn't producing that many films and that many diverse films and for anyone to create their own story would be fantastic also we've had such a, a, a there's, there's been a wasteland really of new movies and we've had a decade or maybe a decade and a half or two decades of sequels where you know massive movie houses just produce and produce the known entity the cash cow and if the cost of production for a high quality uh you know theatrical movie comes down then maybe we'll see a lot more original creative content because there'll be less of a less of a hurdle to get over of will people like this won't people like this perhaps within 10 years all three of us could have created a mini tv series you know it could be that easy to do one thing that uh, i now realize is kind of a common theme in my perception of uh, large language models is lowering the barrier of entry to things and it feels like this is something that could happen to the movie industry as well right because my my first reaction i guess to what you're saying now raf is that uh, okay maybe we can have ai generated stuff but it's not going to replace like true art or something that actually uh, talks to you from from an artistic point of view but maybe that's wrong right so it's in a way a tool that will allow more people that didn't have maybe the the financial uh, 
background to do those things or the, the the skills needed to direct a movie it will still allow them to, to to say something maybe they have something to say but they couldn't say it in that way before and this will allow them to say it in that way so it will in a way lower the barrier of entry to um to making a truly touching piece of art yeah i agree i think you know at every stage of the, of the development of ai everyone is skeptical on some rung of the ladder and then that rung of the ladder gets climbed and defeated and overcome. So I don't really see any point in being skeptical really at any level. Um, it's more about what's going to change, how can we um, adapt, and yeah, what will society look like? One area I find interesting is um, the role of journalist. And I heard a very good quote recently where a journalist was sort of asked whether they're fearing for their role as many people are being asked these days. And the journalist said, well, no, because large language models are really good at providing a sort of a median outlook on a topic. And a journalist's role is to sift through and, uh, you know, heaps and heaps and heaps of haystacks, let's say, to find the needles of a unique viewpoint or a story that hasn't been told yet. And the current, you know, format of large language models, I don't think suit that uh, niche very well. So I actually think journalists, although they're even on this list that we're looking at here, I think they do, as long as they seek out original stories, which, they, you know, is obviously part of the job description, then uh, I think that's a fairly safe role. So jobs where you're you're forced to be original, I don't know why that doesn't seem to apply to the sort of photography and art that we're talking about, because we've seen lots of original art being created by AI. But with journalism, with storytelling, finding original stories that haven't been told yet, that is a different concept because there's a there's a human element that, you know, maybe those stories aren't online yet, whereas lots and lots of images and art are online and you can sort of diffuse and merge and integrate those to create something new. The funny thing about the example of journalists and stock traders is both those roles have been depleting for the last decade already, um, mainly due to the liquidity of information and in the case of stock traders, very few people trade, um, you know, say, FTSE stocks anymore because programs are already done like, even without AI. Um, over 50% of all stock volumes traded are programmatic already. Um, in the case of journalism and the idea of originality, I, I actually don't think it's the originality that will keep these people in jobs because you are right. Today, uh, large language models provided the median position. But you know you can use prompt engineering to ask it to provide a non-medium position, and in future you could have models that have specific types of personalities and styles of writing. But I think what will keep people in jobs are at least one of two things. One is just high risk, high risk roles where you need people to take responsibility in an expert eye, and the second is connection, and this is the more important one. This is why I think even with AI music you will still have normal artists because people connect to the person, not just the creation. And in the case of news and media, I think people will want to hear a specific person's perspective because they want to connect to that person. And philosophically, what we'll eventually find when AIs can replicate humans in every form and manner and, and even surpass them in every form and manner, what we'll find is that we'll realize what it means to be human. And a big part of that is connection. So I think going, going from that, because I think you know, we could we could list 20 different roles and we could discuss how much we think they're going to be impacted. Um, 
and I think you know both of you have really valuable opinions on that. I, what I would really like to do, which is quite well, it will be the first time that we've done this. But firstly, Alex, I'd love to hear how you guys used AI in your previous healthcare company. And uh, Rafi, I think it'd be interesting to talk about how we are planning on using AI to disrupt the legal industry. Um, so I don't know which one of you wants to go first. Happy, happy to go first. So yeah, before Ginny, I, I used to work for a for a healthcare company called Babylon Health, where we were trying to use large language models and AI to um, assist uh, doctors. Essentially, um, we're not trying to use it to replace the doctors, but uh, yeah, one of the one of the biggest uh, pain points, I guess, that doctors have is uh, that. Uh, in addition to their full-time job of uh, caring for patients and uh, having consultations with them, they also have clerical responsibilities. So they need to be uh, taking notes and that and other administrative jobs. And that takes up a big chunk of their time and they hate it. So what we're trying to uh, replace with uh, AI, if uh, if you will, is uh, the need to uh, to to do like medical documentation um or at least help them in this uh, process of uh, creating medical documentation so instead of the doctors having to write everything we had um, recordings of the doctor patient conversations and then transcribe those recordings and then have large language models rewrite those in medical summaries in the form that medical summaries are written by doctors uh, i guess and there's a lot of challenges there because um, even if you have systems that work well, those medical summaries are, um, are used for legal reasons as well. So they need to be a very accurate representation of the uh, doctor-patient consultation. And then you always need uh, the human doctor to be in the loop and uh, sign them off, I guess. So it was never going to be a human-free approach, but uh, it was going to be more like a tool that helps the doctors um, write these notes, but uh, keeping the final responsibility for the for the validity of those notes. And as you can imagine, one of the main issues of large language models that we we were discussing in the previous episodes, which is uh, hallucinations, the fact that they tend to produce statements that are untrue, was a big problem for uh, these kinds of uh, medical summarization systems as well. Sometimes the language model just produces a fact that's not true, and then it's down to the doctor to um, to, to make sure to filter those things out and edit them out of the final note. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm amused now uh, looking at the list that you've been talking about, Alex, that uh, medical transcriptionist is uh, one of the highest uh, uh, highest jobs to be replaced by AI on there with a 90% uh, probability. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I can I agree with that, I guess. Um, a, a brief one on transcription. Um, for the last few years, I've used a tool called Otter to transcribe my own voice notes. This is, uh, I think they're post-Series B now, uh, based in California. They've raised $63 million, and I have always thought of them as the best transcription tool out there until three days ago when I paid $20 for a Mac app that uses OpenAI's Whisper technology and the transcription was so much better for this podcast than it was with otter i've now cancelled my otter subscription and i now just use the mac whisper app which is 
phenomenal. And I can choose which language model I want. I, I can choose how quickly I wanted to transcribe and therefore what error rate I might accept. And it's just incredibly satisfying. And I think it's an example of how quickly things can change. You know, you guys could have spent however long you were spending at Babylon to create uh, a real transcription model that really worked uh, as best it could. And it could be that next year, all of that work is replaced by an open source transcription tool um, that that, is... or, 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 or plugged in or, or you know, whatever. Uh, just an example of the, the pace of change and how quickly user behaviors can change as new tech emerges. That, that is correct. Uh, but just one thing to say, I guess, that uh, at least when I last looked at it, which was several years ago, I must say, Oda was uh, actually using Google Speech Text as the backend. So this is more like a comparison between Whisper and Google Speech Text. Both are very good, but uh, Whisper, in my testing as well, has been the first time that an open source model came close to beating uh, Google Speech Text and other like large uh, speech text uh, vendors. So yeah, what, what Whisper did was uh, pretty incredible. It's not always better but it is great and you can run it on your computer and as you're saying yeah you can also um, pick like how big of a model you want to use depending on uh, what kind of uh, accuracy rate you you're willing to uh, to have so yeah it's again an example of open source coming and replacing large kind of dinosaur like uh, um, models in this case in transcription um, on the babylon front if you don't mind me asking um, what was the sort of discussion? Because this obviously this is pre-chat GPT, uh, so very new technology, new concept, I suppose. But transcription is known, so they may not actually know the underlying technology that's doing the transcribing or some of the clerical work. But how, how did this sort of communication go? How was the, the value proposition delivered to them? Uh, was it based on it being a time-saving? Was it based on, you know, to the hospital saying, you're going to be able to get more hours of surgery from each doctor. You know, how how, how does that work? Because I think that's a big part of this is how does AI improve productivity of the clerical mm -hmm. tasks so that the more so, strategic, the more important things can, can get done? In, in our case, in Babylon's case, first of all, it was an internal Babylon product. So Babylon employs a lot of doctors. So it was uh, more of a tool that those doctors used rather than a tool that we sold to third parties like uh, hospitals, at least when I was working on it. Not sure if that's still the case. Um, but yeah, it was twofold. One was about time saving. So help doctors finish their appointments on time and avoid them having to work uh, out of hours to complete their documentation. But more than that, it was also actually um, the quality of service that uh, we were providing. So one uh, complaint that doctors have is that because they need to take uh, notes, they have to be typing while consulting with patients. And then that's very distracting. It doesn't it, it doesn't allow them to focus their attention fully on the patient. And the patient notices that as well, right? Because you have someone talking to you about some very, very private issues and some issues that you feel strongly about, I guess. And then they're just typing all the time, looking at their computer instead of looking at you. So part of the value proposition was allowing them to focus on the patient rather than um, have to uh, to multitask by by taking notes at the same time that's a beautiful it was hug also back though, to what rafi was saying in terms of connection definitely yeah definitely it was also uh, time saving and in practice we did see that it saved doctors uh, time but yeah the main focus was uh, for, like a point of connection like uh, rafi was saying 
There is a connection here with, uh, I didn't mean to reuse the word connection here, but a connection here with the legal industry as well, though, because uh, both are higher risk industries, like Rafi said, right? So in the medical domain, like I said before, we could not submit a completely AI-generated note. It needs to be checked by a doctor first. So I wonder how it would look like in the legal domain, Rafi. Yeah, in the last... Um... Thanks for that. All, all really interesting, actually. I think in the last 10 years, the companies that have excelled with machine learning have been those where the result they're producing doesn't need to be 100% accurate, but just needs to move the accuracy score from X percent to X plus Y percent. Um, so in the case of medical reports, you can't be wrong. You mustn't be wrong, um, especially not far wrong. Whereas in the case of providing an opinion as to whether a clause is risky or not in a legal contract, there's no, often there's no right answer. Instead, there are logical arguments that are legally sound. And so that's why, for the most part, our task is a bit easier than medical reports. And I think if we can show that the arguments we provide are uh, more logical, more comprehensive, and legally sound compared to what a human lawyer would provide, then I think um, that will be the proof of the pudding. All right. Any last thoughts on uh, on this theme before we move on to the crazy things that we've seen this week? Uh, I get the feeling that we might come back to how jobs and productivity is affected by AI because it's, it's such an interesting uh, area. One last thought, and uh, it relates to, to to this feeling of coming back, is that uh, I wish we had time to discuss um, how uh, these kinds of AI tools will affect coding and data analysis jobs as well, because that's uh, that's what's uh, closer to to me at least and to to us maybe. So yeah, looking forward to another episode where we discuss uh, AI and coding. Yeah, my my kind of closing thought on the future of work is. The next step, as we're already seeing with uh, software like Langchain is an AutoML, is for language models to complete whole workflows and achieve goals, not just generate text. And those goals may be multifaceted, multidimensional with multiple intermediate tasks in between. And as soon as we start doing that, you know, I've already seen companies pop up that are automating entire roles. For example, sales, um, emailing the client, responding to the client, dealing with queries, getting the client right up to the point of pricing, and maybe even convincing them to pay. Um, so that's coming very soon. And what we may find is that companies um, you know, keep, keep all of their current team, keep all of their experts, but then don't hire as much. Uh, and instead, try to deploy language models to replace entire future roles. Well, that brings me very nicely onto the crazy thing that I saw this week. IBM is freezing hiring as the CEO expects AI to replace 8,000 jobs. And it's not abnormal this year in particular uh, and the end of last year to see big tech companies talking about laying people off. The year of efficiency, as Zuckerberg calls it. But the IBM CEO, Arvind Krishna, says 30% of non-customer-facing roles could be axed in the next five years. So it's a pretty strong sign to that entire workforce that unless you are upskilling and learning how to use AI to become more productive, 
you know, and, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, it improves employee retention, improves customer satisfaction, reduces the requirement for someone to escalate an, a need or, or a, a question, a query to their manager, because you have an alternative now. And as long as you can trust that alternative, unlike Samsung, who have told all of their staff to stop using it, as long as you can trust that alternative, then you can treat uh, an AI tool such as OpenAI's GPT-4 as a little bit of a go-between before you talk to your boss. It may be that you can find the answer through a device that helps you ask anything of the entire language found on the internet, which arguably might know more than your boss. No offense, Rafi. I was I was still appreciating the casual jab at Samsung. And then, then you got me as well. <laughs> double double whammy. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. It was good. It was too good. good an opportunity. It was good. Yeah. And you're not wrong. Like, why would anyone talk to me anymore? You know, we we were saying in um over lunch the other time, right? I think you were saying that if you have a problem like your shirt is stained, why not ask your dad or your mum how to solve it because they might well appreciate it because they probably don't get as many queries anymore given everything's so freely available absolutely yeah so for anyone listening when was the last time you asked your mum or your dad or your uncle or whoever for a piece of advice on how to solve something perhaps how to get a red wine stain out of a white shirt apparently white wine is the answer forget you've heard that from me next time it happens just text your mum, even if you actually end up Googling it or asking GPT-4 as a backup plan. It used to be that all these sorts of questions, you didn't just go to Google. Google is not your mum or your dad or your uncle or your auntie, you know, and nor will AI be. So don't forget to start random chats with your family and ask their advice, especially if you know they know the answer or they might know the answer because they will definitely appreciate getting asked. So Little life pro tip, new segment of the podcast that will not be coming back. Is 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 uh, Rafi going to be like that in five years? Maybe we'll uh, we'll say, don't forget that uh, your CEO exists. Go and ask him questions from time to time, and not judge just to keep him engaged and happy. That is that's so possible. I had an even weirder thought when Alex, you said that Google's not your your mum, and I just thought of future generations of children thinking that open ai is their dad or or mum <laughs> oh that is so scary though because it's plausible i mean a, a right. brief sorry yeah but a brief tangent is that the weird thing about te- technological progress is the current generation always finds it weird and the new generation never finds it weird because they grow up native to it and inevitably the new new, new generation always thinks that they're kind of right so, you know, we grew up with the internet and social media and it was all good. We don't need to play outside as much. So when open AI and AIs run everything, even if we were to think it was wrong, the new generation will just think it's normal. <laughs> all right. Let me move on to my crazy piece of news, which is a canvas bot. So it's a it's a experimental tool that's described as an insights research tool which interviews people to learn more about their views on the upcoming local elections so essentially like an automatic canvassing bot um i tried i, I tried it a bit today and it's quite good i'm pretty sure that it's backed by gpt 3.5 or 4 but i had a conversation with it which made total sense it was uh, very sensible and um asked the right information i guess so um yeah, I'm equally scared and excited by um, 
the possibility of using language models for for use like the, this, right? For political uh, canvassing, for um, I don't know, maybe getting uh, that that feeds into journalism a bit as well, like we discussed before, I guess, uh, getting uh, election prognosis and stuff like that. But yeah, I'll I'll post a link to both of you. We can maybe leave a link for our listeners as well and uh, try using it as well, Alex and Rafi. It looks fascinating. It um, Whenever anything's a chatbot interface now, I now just automatically upgrade it to imagining what it looks like when it looks like Cool Annie or some other tool where there's actually an AI avatar that you feel like you're discussing with. I think this chatbot interface is probably going to uh, fall out of fashion fairly soon as we all just get used to chatting to AI humanoids. Um, and I think the example you've given is, is exactly on point with the future of work because user research, right? It's such a difficult area, but you can imagine very large companies like Kantar, for example, who do mass market research, user research, um, paying people to have a 15-minute conversation every week with AI. And the AI can just ask them interesting questions that don't even need to be related to all the same project. It can just work through a sequence, like a logical sequence, through a decision tree of things that it thinks are interesting to its clients. Um, so they might have various clients who are like medical re- medical device researchers or, you know, uh, I don't know, Burger King could be a client. So they could be asking a question about like what type of toothbrush they use, whether they use a water flosser. And then the next thing you know, the AI says, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to change subject here. Where was the last place that you bought a hamburger? And it automatically grabs that data and puts it in the right place, records it, transcribes it, tags it, sends it off to the client that is an entire role at the moment and that is months away from being software software is eating the world very cool example i like that a lot alex yeah i I don't have too much more to add except on the notion of political canvassing and the the big biden video that was entirely ai generated i think is going to be the norm uh, in fact, Alex, P and I, we went to a uh, prompt engineering jam in London not long ago, and that was at a kind of political venue. I did meet some Labour Party uh, people that were using GPT to generate very specifically styled canvassing letters that were tailored to the type of person they were sending it to, for example, depending on their job, their position in society and so on. To be honest, I don't see a big problem with this. All they're doing is they're just automating their work. I don't see what's wrong with that as such. Yeah, I think uh, it does lead on to the next point, though, which is the idea that the next elections are going to be won by the people with the most compute power or the most innovative ways to use that compute power to persuade people. So there you go. That's a creative job that is definitely going to be very highly paid, I would have thought, uh, that's going to come out of all of this. I wonder what it'll be called. AI strategist or something for political parties. Maybe there'll be an AI party that runs the government. (laughs) Would you vote for it? I mean, you know what? (laughs) You know what? It probably would do a far better job than our own politicians, given how every other week there's a scandal of some sort. And I have, you know, like many people, have very little faith in, in politicians. If there's an AI that does the median most of the time, the median's probably better than, than human politicians. You know, I wonder how how far away that is, and like uh, even if it's just as a as a statement or something like that, I'm I'm sure that uh, 
in the, in the next few years, there will be some kind of uh, AI political party that we could vote for. And this is this is fascinating because people always talk about, oh, you know, AI ruling the world. But I just realize maybe that's a good thing, <laughs> you know, compared to Trump and Putin and Xi Jinping. I'd probably take AI. <laughs> Depends on the AI. There could be a Trump AI. <laughs> Which, uh, is a scary thought. Okay, Alex. Uh, so, what's our um, next topic? I was going to say, let's not end on a on a scary note. Let's end on an optimistic note of innovation and entrepreneurship, because the next episode, um, which will be next week, despite the fact I'm in Devon, so my internet may be a bit shaky, but I will crack on. Uh, is going to be on AI startups. So there are lots of sites out there, lots of people who are trying their best, right? This is a full-time job, just keeping up with all of the new AI startups out there. Um, I think we're probably up to some websites that are listing about 3,000 or so now. Um, and that's just in the last six months. And that's only the ones that are on one website. So there are websites where you can go and you can say, you know, I'm looking for an AI to do this. And it links you with like six different AI tools that do that. So I think we're going to uh, touch on some of the more interesting ones, perhaps some of the more wacky ones. And we will be back next week with some quirky AI startups and perhaps some stories of AI startups that have raised massive funding rounds as well, because it's a bit of an interesting uh, venture capital landscape out there as well, which um, is always of interest to me because I like nerding out over that stuff. So thank you very much for your assistance in helping me talk about uh, AI's impact on the future of work. I think we'll probably revisit it. Uh, we've touched on a few other topics, which I've noted down for future episodes, such as prompt hacking and democratization, AI companions and therapists. I think that's an interesting area and AI assistants. Uh, AI and coding. I believe today there was a large announcement uh, of a company that has released a large language model solely for coding. So uh, I believe GitHub Copilot is going to have some, are going to have to do a little bit of running for its money. Uh, and uh, I actually really love the idea of us talking about uh, AI political parties in the future, because I've had this thought and perhaps a boring median AI would actually be quite a good uh, politician. So perhaps we can all secretly hope that politicians are the first to go. And on that note, thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Rafi. Bye, everyone. Bye.